This is Broadcast, Talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. Hello, I'm Jake Cantor and a warm welcome to Talking TV. This episode, climb aboard our television TARDIS as we build up to the Doctor Who 50th anniversary special with BBC drama boss Ben Stevenson. Sonic screwdriver in hand will also shine a light on the industry's issue with diversity and preview two very different period dramas, including BBC Two's Cold War thriller Legacy. Sandwiched between that lot is an interview with Darren Brown's producer Anthony Owen, who's preparing to unveil The Illusionist's latest Channel 4 stunt, The Great Art Robbery. So, that's Doctor Who, Diversity and Darren Brown. You might say it's a 3D special. Joining me in the studio is broadcast features editor and resident Whothian Robin Parker. And I'm also delighted to say that BBC drama controller Ben Stevenson is with us. Hello Ben, how are you? I'm very well. Thank you for inviting me to your radio show. <laughs> I like the fact that we've been upgraded to a radio show, Ben. That is, is good. Oh, other than who, what's keeping you busy? We had the screening last night of um, Death Comes to Pembley, which yeah. part of our Christmas output, which was very exciting. And then lots of EastEnders stuff. EastEnders which is, is building up very, Christmas. very exciting at the moment. And we've Danny got, Dyer. Danny Dyer. He's great. He's gold dust. He's going to be good. I've said lots of people. I've heard lots of people saying they want to watch him. Should we? Should we turn to Doctor Who, which Let's. is of course approaching its fiftieth anniversary this weekend? For listeners who are inexplicably in the dark, the centerpiece of the celebrations will be a special episode of the sci-fi drama titled "The Day of the Doctor." It airs in seventy-five countries around the world on Saturday, featuring current Time Lord Matt Smith, his predecessor David Tennant and an ominous incarnation of our hero portrayed by John Hurt. Take us back to when this all started. What was what was your original ambition, Ben? We started talking about, about probably two or three years ago, and I guess what we felt was, of course we wanted to honour the show itself, but we also wanted to think about the show in relationship to the BBC, because I think both of them have something very iconically British about them, and that in celebrating one, you're celebrating the other. So it was really important to think about how you combine the heritage with taking it forward into a modern era. And obviously what's really interesting at the moment, this is the last full episode of Matt Smith's Doctor before Peter Capaldi takes over. So it's a really interesting time in terms of combining past, present and future. I mean, did it feel like a a sort of great burden of responsibility? When you were staring down the barrel of this. I think it a huge burn of responsibility for Stephen and probably for Matt. Yeah. But you sort of have to put that one to one side and just think, I just want to tell the best story we can tell. Of course, it's standalone, but at the same time, it can't be separate from the series that just came um, and it can't be separate to what's going to happen at Christmas. So I think our aim really was we're never going to please everyone so we just want to make the very best episode for what it is. Robin, you're you're a fan of the show. Uh, where does the 50th rank among who moments do you think? Well I think for you know, long term fans of the show it is, does feel like Christmas is coming early. You know, you're getting the big <laughs> cinema release, you're getting three Doctors possibly, you're getting Daleks, you're getting the Zygons who haven't been in it for about 40-odd years. It's a fiesta. <laughs> it is. And Stephen, in the, sort of the, the very early publicity for this, said he was you know, quite mindful not just to make it a fan fest. So I think it also operates on two levels, really. One is you know, lots of little treats for the fans. You only have to see that by the reaction, the, the sort of delight that people had last week where there was a, an almost unannounced uh, web release for a mini-episode 
that starred Paul McGann. That was a, one of the best kept secrets that the BBC's managed to keep on Doctor Who recently. Yeah. But also I think it's important for perhaps some more slightly casual viewers who've, who've kind of dipped in and out and maybe they, they love David Tennant, they weren't so keen on Matt Smith, maybe they liked certain stories and not others. A lot of them will come back this weekend and I think it's a good celebration not only of 50 years but also I think of the show it is now. And clearly this is a much bigger project for the BBC. There's been shows beyond the drama stronghold. How involved have you been in all of those other discussions? Yeah, me and Faith, who runs BBC Wales Drama, have um, really wanted to keep quite a tight rein on it. Not because we're control freaks, but just because we don't want to get to the stage where it feels overkill. We want every programme to deliver something meaningful and different. So I think we've offered quite a bespoke offering, which I think feels credible for what the show has delivered to the BBC, but not so over the top that it starts to become a bit irrelevant, weirdly. So I think from the Brian Cox documentary last week um, through to the Culture Show this week and, of course, on Thursday night, the behind the scenes of how it started, I think every piece has a unique role to play. But ultimately, the shop window is Saturday night. And and finally, Robin, uh, you went to the uh, the premiere of the Mark Gattis uh, biopic, An Adventure in Space and Time. It, was, uh, it, was, it, was, it went down well, didn't it? That's quite an understatement. I think it's possibly the first <laughs> time I've seen a standing full ovation. standing ovation at a, at a, at a, a TV screening. Um, it was a mixture of hacks who were who are fans or who they had a professional duty and who I think a lot of people, it's had very, very good word from, from the critics so far. And fans who queued up for hours. I mean, then there was certainly someone who answered a question who I think it queued for eight hours. Just, yeah, just eight hours. Yeah. And there was people dressed up. Is that up. you? <laughs> I didn't need to queue. I had, you I got had a free pass, Robin. <laughs> but there were people dressed up as their favourite doctors yeah. and all sorts. And and it was a, you know, actually quite an emotional evening. You know, you had William Hartnell's granddaughter there and she was due on a panel afterwards and she had to take a moment. She'd just seen her childhood on screen and her, her late grandfather. And David Bradley is amazing. And David Bradley as must Hartnell. surely be up for yeah, every award going come, so. come BAFTA season, RTS and all the rest. So it tees things up well for, for Saturday. I think so. And I think, you know, there'll be, there'll be some fans for whom this is as important, yeah, as, as emotionally exciting as, as the big special. Thanks, Robin. Uh, ben, before you say goodbye, uh, we're just about to move on to discuss Broadcast Diversified Conference last week. Uh, one of the themes that came up was the lack of roles for black and Asian talent in British TV, which is increasingly forcing actors to uh, find work in the US where there are uh, you know, a few more meteor roles on offer. There's a sense, for example, also that there is a gritty urban stereotype, but little about the black middle class. Is that something you would, you would recognise? I mean, I think it's a really complex conversation. I think the BBC is doing better than other broadcasters, and I think the BBC is doing better than we've done for quite a long time. Uh, if you look at Line of Duty, Luther, Dancing on the Edge, some of the shows we've got coming up, obviously EastEnders, Holby and Casualty, I think there is a really broad range of characters. However, I do think it must continue and we can do better. Mm. I'm not entirely sure about the US versus UK comparison. That is a country that spends about two billion on drama a year and has 41 different places making drama. So, of course, there are more opportunities. I don't think the drama we make is that urban type of drama. Do you get lots of urban pitches? No, I think they're all safe for Channel 4, to be honest. <laughs> I, I really Not even for BBC Three? No, not really. Um, I mean, I never know what urban means, really, anyway. I think that we can do two things. I think we must find stories that are, are organically about people of all races, sexualities and genders that can only be about that person. 
But I also think we can be better at encouraging a broader mix of actors in any role, however it's written. Thanks for coming in, Ben. It is much appreciated. Pleasure. Sticking with the diversity theme, uh, Citizen Khan creator and star Adol Ray was one of the speakers at the Diversify conference uh, last week. He caught up with broadcast editor Lisa Campbell after the event and uh, he was talking about uh, his belief that individuals should play a role in bringing through new talent Uh, and he also said that it is important for the BBC to play a role as well through the Asian network and BBC Birmingham. I mean, the one thing I would say, the one thing that, you know, I remind myself that I, I completely benefited from was the BBC Asian network and the Asian programmes unit. On paper, you think, oh God, they can sound very terrible. You think, well, that's, you know, that's just there to serve a purpose. But that is absolutely the kind of thing I think the BBC needs to be supporting. Strange enough, they both came out of BBC Birmingham and when the BBC made sort of changes up to Salford and to Bristol, you know, Birmingham sort of got left on the sidelines and, you know, a lot got closed down. I and mean, it's almost like a ghost town now. And I know actually today, as we speak, the Director General and a number of BBC bods are all meeting with the BBC Trust to try and come out with a plan for Birmingham. So thankfully they are looking at it. But that's the sort of thing where I think something like the BBC needs to be absolutely careful of is that when it makes big decisions like that, is that a city like Birmingham, with its diversity... Uh, should in some ways, I mean, I don't believe in positive discrimination and quotas, but something like BBC Birmingham needs to be given some kind of priority. I think, well, actually, this is a kind of place that the BBC needs to be creating programming for, simply because of the diverse makeup of the city. Joining us in the studio now is uh, is Lisa Campbell herself. Hello. Hello. <laughs> You're awake. <laughs> you were yes, you were down at the conference last week. It was it was pretty feisty stuff, wasn't it? It was. It was an absolutely amazing audience. I mean, it, it was it was a sellout. There were 200 people, um, and they were so engaged and so passionate about the issue. I mean, I, I've been describing the audience as a cross between X Factor and Question Time for the way they cheered and challenged, and uh, <laughs> you know, they they really went for it. And I think there was a lot of frustration that this is an issue that we've been talking about for decades. And and really, that's one of the reasons why Broadcast and Screen International wanted to put this conference on in the first place, because when we saw creative skill sets, latest census showing that the percentage of black and minority ethnic groups in the industry had dropped down to 5.4%, the lowest level it's been since the census began in 03, was, was quite shocking, really. And I, I think we feel that it's talked about a lot and it's time for some action. So we wanted to bring all these different groups together. There's lots of good individual work, but really it needs sustained, structured approach to, to making some changes. So, um, so there were some great debates there around how we achieve that. Yeah, and some great panellists as well. I mean, you had uh, Lenny Henry and Adil, of course, himself. Yeah, and Una King and um, director Amara Sante. We had Ade Adepitan and we had Penny Woolcock talking about her documentary um, set in Birmingham, um, looking at the gangs, and Kwame Kwai-Ama. And so, I mean, you caught up with Adil and he clearly had some interesting thoughts. Uh, what, what, what else did he tell you? Well, stereotypes was one of the hot topics on the day. And, you know, criticisms about the way black youth is often portrayed in gritty urban drama. Addy actually pointed out that things have improved, remarking that the only black people he'd see on TV when he was growing up were on Police 5. So Adel Ray has been praised and criticised at the same time, really, for stereotypical characters in Citizen Khan. And we spoke more about that. We certainly play with a stereotype. But then I will get sort of people from an Asian background who will say... That is just like my father. It's just like my house. That's just like my family. Ali is just like my daughter. 
then yes, I will get some Asian people who will say, oh, we're not like that at all. You know, so <laughs> it's a very difficult game when you go in there and suddenly you're expected to represent. You just, you possibly, you just cannot possibly represent. And we as a group of Asian people, whether we work in the media as writers or whether we're people at home watching it on TV, we're not an homogenous group. And actually, what, even when we think about what we think the stereotype is, I mean, I, I, mean, I don't know, what is the stereotype of, a, of uh, an Asian Pakistani man? I probably think it's no different to a, the stereotype of, a, of any sort of man, really. I mean, you know, Mr. Khan as a character is no different to Jim Royal from the royal family or, you know, in some aspects, Del Boy. And so, so actually, I don't, I don't think they're Asian-specific stereotypes. But one thing, I, you know, I would say that the, I remember speaking to the EastEnders writers and when it comes to character portrayal that, you know, if you did something like, they said if we, if we put the Muslim family in the pub in the Queen Bee, then they'd get letters saying, well, that would never happen. You know, you'd never find a Muslim family in the pub. But we know that there are some Muslims who do go to the pub. But, but, you know, that's what they would get. But then if they put them working a market store, which most people do in Albert Square or running a shop like most people do in Albert Square, then they'd get letters and going, well, is that all we are? You can't really win, I think. So in the end, I think you have to write what you want to write and you need to get that support. And I, and I think with Citizen Car, I mean, I've just been given great support from but at the very top, from Danny Cohen as a controller of BBC One at the time when we got commissioned to Mark Friesen as the exec. And they've given us a lot of support, you know, and they've uh, really backed us as to, as to what we wanted to do. And I wanted to put sort of Mr. Khan's religion and faith at the, at the forefront initially because I just felt that was a real USP for us and I really wanted to do that. I really wanted to make a thing of him being Pakistani because, I, again, I thought that was my USP. And and I say to a lot of sort of people who are coming through and I say, you know, that don't be afraid to use your, your colour, your faith uh, and your background because it, it is something very unique that we have, and why, why shouldn't we um, make a thing of it? Not everyone chooses to do that, and they don't have to, but, uh, you know, I kind of thrive on that, really. So, finally, so what next? Uh, will, the, will the campaign continue? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're really committed. I think um, Kate O'Connor from Creative Skillset described it as a seminal event, and we you know we really hope that was the case. We talked about access. Um, it's not just about new entrants. There's there's problems at mid level and p- people hitting the glass ceiling. We talked about accountability, and I think that was the key thing that came out of the day: the sort of program contracts, but at a wider level through industry wide diversity pledge through the CDN. And there was the Creative Diversity Network did come in for quite a lot of criticism, particularly because it's passed around like a parcel between broadcasters every two years, as the former RTS chair, Simon Albury, pointed out. So no one's really held to account. No one's really taken this seriously and looking at it with any sort of longevity. So I think until there's a permanent secretariat for their perhaps stewardship from BAFTA, you know, we're just going to continue talking. And I think that's got to stop. We've got to act. So a thought there for the broadcasters. Thanks for coming in, Lisa. That's your news for this week. My gratitude to Ben Stevenson. Robin Parker and Lisa Campbell. Up next, he's attempted Russian roulette live on television and made a zombie apocalypse a reality for one unlucky soul. But Darren Brown is showing no signs of mellowing with age. For his latest wheeze, the illusionist will attempt to nab a Turner-nominated painting from a renowned art collector, with the help of a group of OAPs. Joining me in a minute to talk us through the great art robbery and much more is Anthony Owen, the head of magic at Objective Productions. But first, let's remind ourselves of a classic Darren moment. 
In this new post-apocalyptic world, Stephen will meet actors playing characters who've been specifically created to bring out the best in him. Through them, he'll learn about bravery, making decisions, and compassion. That's courage, a brain, and a heart. Okay, are the actor's earpieces working? All good, sir. Okay, stand by, everybody. We roll the emergency broadcast. And cue lights. Welcome, Anthony. Thank you for having me. Um, now, you're reasonably constrained in what you can say about the new heist, but tell us what you can. As you say, I can't say much about it at the moment because <laughs> there's an embargo, but what I can say is basically what's in the press release, which is that... Um, Darren is going to attempt to steal a painting from a gallery and to do that he has pulled together a team of people in an Ocean's Eleven style. Uh, but yeah. the, the twist being that that team of people are not career criminals, they are old age pensioners. Right. And you've you've chosen a, an art collector called, is it Ivan Masso, is that, is that Ivan correct? Ivan Masso is the art collector, yeah. Yeah, and is there any particular reason why you went for him? He's or? actually a friend of Darren's, is so uh, they have a re- relationship anyway. So it basically, it's um, the show is about quite a fun bet. It's a, a simple bet uh, between the two of them, and yeah. then that is the start of the roller coaster journey to find the people and, um, and train them up to do naughty things. So he's stealing from a friend. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And why has he recruited OOPs? It came from a, th- a thought of Darren's about the fact that old people are invisible in the world today. So it's kind of, as with Apocalypse, that was a modern telling of Wizard of Oz and basically trying to get across the positive message of there's no place like home through a provocative hidden camera jape. And this time it's about how do we get the message about old age pensioners in the UK today through another entertaining journey. So there's a bit of a, a, a message here about what OAPs are capable of? or is, It's about what they're, what, they're yeah. Ca- yeah, what they're capable of, but also how they're perceived in the UK today and actually, you know, the the idea that they're invisible, that they could sneak into a gallery and steal a painting. <laughs> kind of says a lot about how we treat old age pensioners today. How do you conceive ideas and put them into practice? Is it a case of sort of nothing's impossible? It's a long-term process. I've been working with Darren for 15 years now and with Channel 4 for as long. And it's a long-term process we talk about. Darren ponders on ideas for a long time. So the... Something with a with a painting, obviously Darren has a love of art, he's a painter as well, so it's something that we've been thinking about for a long time, probably 10 years. We've been talking about doing a, a sort of our version of the really? um, of the Thomas Crown Affair, uh, and we'd, we'd thought about you know, Darren putting one of his paintings into a museum before people did that, and Banksy did that. It's actually only this year probably where the old age pensioners thing, Darren sort of, that became a p- particular passion for him to do something around that, and that kind of fitted in with the with the highest idea in Channel 4, like the idea. So things take a long time to come to fruition. You know, think about things for a long time. And that's not just with Darren, yeah. with all the things that I do. You know, it's stuff in the notebooks from a long time back that finally you find a broadcaster that wants to buy it. And it's kind of like, okay, great. Well, this is, yeah. know, the time is right for this now. So there can be a long gestation and, and, and ideas can be knocking around for years. Yeah. So what, at what point does, does it click and you think, actually, that idea that we had five years ago now seems plausible and we can put it into action. Things just move to the top of the list and you know, it takes a couple of elements to fall into place and something happens in the news or something happens in terms of 
a broadcaster looking for a certain kind of show and yeah. this just felt like it was right for the current climate the broadcaster wanted to do it Daryl wanted to do it and so this was the year to do this one is there a lot of pressure do you find to to try and top the last stunt is that something that's always in the forefront of your mind Darren is very established. He's uh, a big star and he's at a point in his career where actually he can kind of choose to do what he wants to do. So actually Mm. our way of dealing with that or his way of dealing with that is to do something that's the complete opposite of what he's just done. So there's nothing more different from the apocalypse. Okay, let's do something with a bunch of old people that's kind of like a caper is kind of the opposite of trying to top ourselves is just move in a different direction you know yeah. and when we predicted the lottery the next thing we did was just go and make a, a series of small documentaries so it's you know, he, he's smart enough and well round enough that he can turn himself to doing different things so yeah. actually rather than just continue to be a magician who just has to do different tricks and how do you continue to do bigger and bigger tricks you know that becomes an impossible challenge and actually <laughs> now we just do different things and it's about doing things that he wants to do that interest him and you know, and, and that work for the broadcaster too. And he doesn't shy away from doing things that are quite controversial and, and may attract criticism. I mean, how do you deal with that as a production company and, and, and how do you prepare the broadcaster for what the fallout might be from the various tricks you're, you're getting up to? Again, it's a collaboration. It's having a great relationship with the broadcaster, and also that's part. You know, that's why Channel Four is a great home for him because that's part of their remits to yeah, do that kind of risks. stuff. You know, he's he is the, uh, you know, he's the poster boy of doing those kind of things. You know, whilst there's always a hook when you watch it, actually, there's always some sort of positive message or yeah. positive journey for the people within it. Magic is enjoying quite a purple patch on television at the moment. Why do you think that is? I think all things go in cycles. Talent shows go in cycles, cookery shows go in cycles, and Magic's having a big positive time at the moment. There's a lot of people jumping on that bandwagon trying to make Magic shows. Dynamo's been a massive part of that success, and UK TV have kind of got behind that, and they're doing lots of other Magic shows, some of which we're doing with them. I think there's something about the economic times that people yeah. just, you know, that magic actually is just a release. And, you know, in, in some of the ways it can be portrayed, it's actually you know, a positive, uplifting watch yeah. uh, to just watch people seeing something amazing happen that takes you away from the day to day life. Fascinating stuff, Anthony. Uh, thanks very much for joining us today and good luck with the show. Uh, the Great Art Robbery will air on Channel 4 in December. Finally, oh yes, it's time for some previews. Robin Parker and Lisa Campbell are back to steer us through this episode's offerings, which have a distinct dramatic flavour. We start with something a little different. It's not often we put an acquisition to the test, but we're throwing out the rulebook, much like the protagonist in BBC One's new Australian daytime drama, The Dr Blake Mysteries. Set in 1959, the eight-part ABC series stars former Neighbours actor Craig McLaughlin as Dr Lucian Blake, a wry police surgeon who uses techniques ahead of his time to solve mysteries. Here's Blake getting to grips with a suspicious death in the first episode. Wilson said it was a drowning. Doesn't need the tool, does it? Ever tried to drown yourself, Gus? Not recently. Not easy in three feet of water. Let's have a look, eh? Hematomas to the neck. Shoulders and upper chest. I'm sorry about this. It's not very dignified, is it? Would you not do that? What? Talking to the body. Well, you should always talk to your patients, Gus. Robin, let's start with you on this one. Daytime viewers do love a bit of sleuthing, so surely this is a winner. I think it might well be. Like all the best 
kind of light crime dramas. The Dr. Blake Mysteries has a protagonist who has Maverick running through him like a stick of rock. <laughs> time posted very heavily in the first scene where, he, where he's uh, installing a bit of nu- a nude painting into a gentleman's club. He's, yeah. And he even owns you know, a, a copy of the band Catcher in the Rye and all the rest of it. One thing I did, I did think was, you know, clearly someone involved has been watching a lot of House. <laughs> because there's a scene in this where he sort of shocks his uh, peers and his colleagues by swallowing some pills blind that might well be amphetamines. And all I could think of was Dr. Gregory House sort of saying something wry and quite, quite mean in return. But this is very much light affair. It's, it's very undemanding, but it's, it's compelling enough. Did you enjoy it, Lisa? I was actually quite surprised because I remember Craig McLaughlin from <laughs> Neighbours Days, you know, with his curly perm. And his pop career. And his pop career, of course. And uh, his curly perm and his pecs. And I just, I don't know, he was a bit of a joker in Neighbours and you didn't, you know, you didn't ever take him seriously. He's a bit more um, gruff here, isn't he? Yeah. And so I was actually quite pleasantly surprised by his acting ability. I thought he was, he was actually really good, you know, very watchable. It is a bit cliched. I mean, he's a damaged man and he's got the, the background, you know, he's come from the war and he's he's dealing with those awful images and things that he, he's seen. His cleaners found all the bottles under his desk. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the, the empty whiskey bottles. Yes. Yeah, and he's, you know, streets ahead of everyone around him in terms of his view of of women and society and and uh, you know damaged girls in this in this um, school. So um, I think he's great, but the the characters around him are really just not very fleshed out at all. Yeah, I think they're a bit they're two dimensional, aren't they? Completely. Yeah. So uh, you know, you you hope that as it progresses, that you will that will improve. And yeah, I thought it set up the other characters. Yeah, uh, and you feel. I mean, it's it's got eight parts, so you know, there's clearly the space for them to develop and uh, and have a bigger part in the show. The, the the one thing I did think is it looked good. It was glossy and it all came together very well, I thought, and won't look out of place next to other British commissions such as Father Brown and things like that. What, what did you, did, did, do you agree? What yeah, I mean? no, I agree. Of course, it's important to note that it's, it is made for peak time in Australia, where I suppose, yeah. you know, this is their equivalent of a, a Death in Paradise or a, a George Gently or something like that. So it's got a, yeah, it's probably got a, it's got peak time money behind it. So it will look suitably glossy in the daytime schedule. So yeah. I don't think viewers will feel shortchanged in that sense. It's yeah, and it, and it has got an air of authenticity. It doesn't. It doesn't feel cheap, and it, it's got that sort of nostalgia of of heartbeat or something. So you, you can see that being. Yeah, it definitely you know, had a heartbeat feel. Yeah. Oh, I'd agree with that, but with just enough of an edge as well. I mean, yeah, it's produced by December Media Production, uh, which is the Australian indie that co-produced uh, ITV's Mrs. Big. So there's clearly some authority here, isn't there? It feels like a show that will travel. I don't know where else it's been sold to, but it does feel like something that's got its own, its own identity, some clear influences. But it's it's you know a different setting, and he's a a strong enough character to carry it. It's done brilliantly in Australia, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, it was recommissioned halfway through its first series by ABC, uh, so we could well see more on BBC One if it does well. Uh, BBC One's The Doctor Blake Mysteries begins on the twenty fifth of November at two fifteen pm. Moving on to our second drama, it's Paula Milne's feature-length Cold War thriller, Legacy. Set in 1970s London, the BBC Two drama tells the story of Charles Thorogood, a young spy who discovers some shocking truths about his father. Legacy is based on Alan Judd's novel of the same name and is the first project from Slim Film and Television, the indie run by former Kudos managing director Simon Crawford Collins. It stars Sherlock's Andrew Scott as a Russian spy, alongside the hour's Romola Gari. But first, here's our protagonist, Thorogood, played by Charlie Cox, getting some lessons in espionage. Antidote to all known poisons currently used by the KGB. Thallium is their usual choice. 
Initial symptoms, abdominal pain, nausea, and vomiting. If you experience one or all of them, take two grams immediately, get yourself to hospital. Any delay could prove fatal. I'm just an old friend getting back in touch. I would think it won't harm me. It depends how convincing you are. Trick to lying. Always stick as close to the truth as possible. Lisa, do you want to kick us off with this one? Um, yeah, I think I think like Dr. Blake, it, it's the attention to you know the period detail is well done. It's you know it has I think the art direction and grading lent a, a real authenticity. A lot of soft focus. I think it really does capture the dark days of the seventies, the strikes, the power cuts, the, you know, the Cold War machinations. You, you really do get that that feel. I enjoyed the way the camera voyeuristically follows around the main protagonist, Charles Thorogood, often from a distance, and so that really adds to the sense of tension and paranoia. It does feel like he's being followed most of the Definitely, time. Definitely, yeah. It was well cast. I'll, I'll, I agree with that. I think Charlie Cox was was particularly good, and and I think this gave it a promising start, but. I just wasn't gripped. I mean, despite the initial tension of, of the camera following him around, I just found it became really quite ponderous. I don't think the portentous music really helped that. It, you know, just this sort of ponderous yeah. air, to be honest. I think that, you know, the modern pacing was, was missing from the period drama. I yeah, think. I did struggle with it a bit. And it was a bit like the Cold War itself, I thought, sort of devoid of much warmth and uh, not very much happened. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know whether that's a bit harsh. What do you think, Robin? Yeah, I, I generally don't mind a, a slow drama, you know, give me give me a, a madman any day, but I felt this was a, just a thriller without the thrills, really. The, the plot is ultimately fairly slight without too many twists, and when there are twists, I'm not quite sure I, I bought them. But I think you do need something of the complexity of a Tinker Tailor soldier spy to kind of to bring this kind of era to life. I also thought, while it was well-directed and well-put together generally, there were a few cliches in there, and I, and I, I was quite surprised that they, the overuse of the, the already much overused Requiem for a Dream soundtrack over the yeah. all, all the action toward, towards the end I right. thought was a bit of a, a lazy shorthand. I admired it, I watched it to the end, but I just thought it needed... It needed some serious oomph or at least some sort of jaw-dropping moments. You know, there, there was very little action in it. It was very talky, which is not... And it just sort of, like you, left me a little bit cold, really. I mean, but um, you're right. I mean, there were some decent performances, I thought. I thought Charlie in the in the, in the main role was, was engaging mm-hmm. and you could see him doing much more on, on British television. Definitely, and yeah. Andrew Scott's always very watchable, I yeah, think. Yeah. Even with his sort of, sort of half-dodgy <laughs> Russian accent. <laughs> And I mean, this all forms part of BBC Two's Cold War season, which, you know, I think is quite admirable programming, tackling quite a difficult subject. So, you know, it's sort of a different string to that bow, isn't it? And another thing to note on Legacy is it's, I think it's one of the first UK dramas on screen that's benefited from the tax breaks. Now, aside from the kind of quite starry cast and clearly general cinematic style, I, I thought, again, it was a slightly a wasted opportunity and that you can't really see what it's added to the drama to have this huge budget. It didn't, no, it didn't, it didn't feel big budget at all, did it? OK, maybe we should leave it there. Thanks, guys. Legacy airs on the 28th of November at 9pm. And that is just about that. Uh, it's been a packed show, so I'm sure you can forgive us for bidding farewell. My thanks to Ben Stevenson, Adil Ray and Anthony Owen. Gratitude also to broadcast colleagues Lisa and Robin. And of course, our producer, Matt Hill. Thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. You've been listening to Broadcast, talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. 